Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Uh, we are looking at Isaiah 60 to 62, and the dominating concern of these final 11 chapters, as we've said week by week, is this question, how shall we live in between the reality of the cross and Christ's return to establish his kingdom? How shall we live in between the cross and Christ's return? And uh, understanding that God's people are the justified remnant who hear and believe God's word, we do that with a pure heart. Um, we're eager then to know how does God and how does God expect me, the forgiven sinner, to live, you know, in this in-between time? How do I, as an adopted child of the King, how do I live and demonstrate the genuineness of my faith in His? In his promises. And what we learn as we go through these chapters, as we're working through these chapters, especially in the first uh, three chapters, four chapters of 56 to 59, is that the remnant are those who prove the reality of their faith by their genuine obedience to God's word, both in terms of their belief and in terms of their behavior. God's people are those who hear the word. Yes, we believe it. We, we, we affirm it in our hearts, but we also uh, do that from a heart of faith. In other words, we walk sincerely and not superficially. We draw near to God in Christ rather than deal wickedly with, with others. We confess sin openly rather than carry on carelessly. Those are some of the things that we saw in those chapters. This is God's instruction to us, his people now, in the present, as we live our lives. But this gracious gift of persevering faith, that isn't just concerned about the present. It's not only concerned with the horizontal, our lives now. It also looks ahead to something greater that is coming, something in the future. The hope that we have been saved into in Jesus Christ is not just a hope for hope's sake. Uh, Paul says it like this in Romans 8. He says, who, and he asks this kind of rhetorical question, who hopes for what he already sees? And the, the expected answer, the obvious answer is no one. No one. Hope that is seen, he says, is not hope. Hope is tethered to what we don't see. Hope is, is about waiting eagerly for something yet to come. And in so doing, we do that with the spirit of perseverance. So our hope, the believer's hope, looks expectantly and confidently to the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the future. Uh, our hope is a hope that looks ahead to a consummated reality in which God's eternal kingdom in his glory breaks forth and overtakes the kingdom of darkness finally and forever. Our hope looks ahead to the future when all rebellion and sin will be judged and perfect righteousness will prevail. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in the disciples' prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I would just add, just as kind of a, a, a mini application, if you don't pray that or some version of that on a regular interval, you should. You should. And I don't mean mindlessly repeating it all the time like the Roman church teaches its disciples to make, but honestly and sincerely praying that God's kingdom would finally and forever be established as his word is promised. I mean, we can pray that, and we should we should long for that because that, the, the cry of that prayer is that the consummated existence that Adam lost, that Adam forfeited by his sin in the garden, that that consummated reality would be brought to completion by the second Adam on account of his life, death, and resurrection. 
when you and I pray the disciples' prayer, you're petitioning the Lord that you would no longer have to look through a mirror dimly, but would be able to behold our God and Savior face to face. That's what we want. That's what we long for. You're asking the Lord that present faith that we have now, as weak and as wobbly and weary as it is at times, that that would become sight. Chapters 56 to 66 don't simply instruct us to walk in the present. They encourage us to hope expectantly into the future, for the future. And so from Isaiah 59 and verse 15, all the way to chapter 63 and verse, verse 6, Isaiah's previewing what God's people are waiting patiently for, what we're looking ahead to as believers when we pray that your kingdom would come and that his will would be done. And what we're waiting for, we said, is twofold. We're waiting for the crushing defeat of the wicked, and we're waiting expectantly for the crowning salvation of the righteous. Both of those realities are in this, where we are waiting for Christ to return, to destroy the enemies of truth, to execute perfect and eternal justice in this world. And we're also waiting for Christ to come back to save his people and to usher in perfect and eternal blessedness. And we reiterated last week that we need to know both sides of that. We need to understand both sides of that coin if we're going to have a fully formed expectation and hope for the future. Christ is coming back. We know that. And he's coming back to stamp out every last trace of evil in the world. And he's also coming back to reward and bless the many that he has made righteous. And it's that first work of judging evil that we looked at in some detail last Sunday. We learned that Christ's coming to conquer and stamp out every remaining vestige of sin, that that, we looked at that from three angles. We looked at it in terms of the identity of the one who will do that, right? Christ is presented in chapter 59, verse 15, and following into, and also again in chapter 63, as the royal conqueror. He's presented as the righteous redeemer. He's also called the arm of the Lord. He's not an ordinary king. He's, he's, he's not a, a, just a man. He is a divine person. We said blameless with inexhaustible power. These are things that, these realities that are described in these verses are, are things that could only be true of God by nature. And we looked at it from, in terms of his objective. What is, what is this righteous conqueror's objective? What has he come to do? And Isaiah tells us that when Christ returns, he will repay wrath to his enemies. Isaiah 59 and verse 17, he, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. And according to their deeds, he says, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will make recompense. Every offense against an infinite and holy God, every offense against God will either be covered by the blood of Christ or it will be met with an infinite and eternal punishment in hell. Isaiah 63 verse 2, uh, Isaiah is looking as if he's watching a scene unfold in verse 2. He says, why of, of this righteous conqueror, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And, and God answers, the, the Messiah answers, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I am stained. I have stained all my raiment. I trod down the peoples in anger, 
and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is graphic language, and it's intentionally vivid. When God's justice is measured out, Isaiah tells us he will trample out the nations like, like one tramples out grapes in a wine press. That's a terrifying reality for the world, and yet at the same time, it's a comforting hope for the believer. We can patiently fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions now, even enduring the most incredible persecution, the most relentless trial, because we can pillow our heads each night on the certainty, the reality that God will come and he will defeat evil and right all that is wrong. And we also saw, as we looked at this text last week, Isaiah bids us to consider the purpose for Christ's coming. Why is he coming? And we said, the obvious answer is, because no one else can. There's no human being or collective group of human beings that can deal with sin, that can purge the earth of sin and its curse effects. The problem of sin, divines a, uh, the problem of sin requires a divine response. There's no savior out there who's going to fundamentally transform the world in righteousness except Jesus Christ. And so beyond that, Christ's coming, we said, in judgment is necessary because it guarantees that we have an everlasting and worldwide redemption. Christ alone won the victory. We saw that back in chapter 53. He made himself a guilt offering. He rose from the grave. He has conquered sin and death. And out of that victory, he will take up his beloved children's cause and he will, out of that victory, secure us and bring us home to everlasting glory. So Isaiah invites, as, he, as we looked at these, um, these bookends last week, he invites both sinner and saint to contemplate the coming defeat of the wicked and the coming, uh, 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 def- and as we're going to see this morning, the coming salvation of the righteous. He is addressing both groups of people as he speaks here. Both of them are in view. But from that crushing defeat of the wicked, we have to understand that there's a second side to that coin, and that is the crowning salvation of the righteous. And that's what we want to look at this morning. When Christ has destroyed his enemies and he has cast them into the lake of fire, what Revelation 20 and verse 14 calls the second death, at that point, there will be no more darkness. There will be no more death. There will be no more defeat. There is only light, the scripture says, and life and rest. And it's in that crowning salvation of the righteous that we see Isaiah take up you know, what he says here in chapter 60 to 62. And, and the watch word, as we look through these, these three chapters, the watch word in these chapters you can just put it in your notes, is glory. It's glory. Uh, whenever you see a term repeated or a concept, it doesn't have to be the exact same word, but the concept repeated again and again in a short span, that can clue us into some key theme in that text. And that's what we see here. The watchword of these chapters is glory. Psalm 79, we just read it for our scripture reading. The psalmist pleads with God. He says, help us, O God of our salvation, Why? For the glory of your name. And he says, and deliver us and forgive us our sins for your name's sake. And return to our neighbors sevenfold what they deserve. He says, so we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. That's glorifying God. 
to all generations, we will tell of your praise. That's all glory. All of that language is glory. The cru- and so what we need to understand is the crushing defeat of the wicked and the crowning salvation of the righteous has an appointed end, a goal that it's reaching toward. And that end isn't ultimately about us, which I know is hard for us to think about sometimes because everything in this world seems to be about us. But this is not ultimately about us. It's about God. The crowning salvation of the righteous is about God and the everlasting display of his glory. Now, what do I mean by the everlasting display of his glory? I'm talking about the manifest, meaning the visible goodness of God's infinite person revealed and reveled in in by his adopted children for all eternity. That's what we're talking about. And of course, that's an amazing thing to really stop and think about for us as, as, as sinners. The, think about this, and we've talked about this. We've got some messages on the beginning part of 1 Corinthians, I think, that explain this in more detail if you're ever interested in listening more about it. The triune God, who has always had life and love in himself between the members of the Godhead, has, out of the overflow of his infinite life, promised, covenanted to give eternal life and love to a people a creaturely people that he created and chose from before the foundation of the world. And Ephesians 1 says he did all that for the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the sole reason that God is doing everything. So the entire, the point is the entire arc of human history has been and continues to move toward consummation for that end. The, the glory of God and our enjoyment of that glory forever as his people. Everything else you see described about the future, resurrection bodies, um, fellowship with other believers and loved ones that have gone on before us in Christ, uh, uh, the renewal of the creation, a new created order uh, where, where sin and its effects are, are removed. Those things are in service of the greatest reality. And the greatest reality is that God is moving human history for the display of his own glory in eternity. And this, this has to be what all true believers in Christ are ultimately waiting for. This is what we are waiting for. And so what we're going to see this morning as we move, at least start to move through these chapters this morning, we're going to see God's glory through the crowning salvation of the righteous in five well, we're only going to see two today, but five distinct spheres, right, as we move through these chapters. We're going to see God's glory through the crowning salvation of the righteous, which is what all this is about, in five distinct spheres. We're going to see it in the manner in which he uh, crowns the righteous with salvation. We're going to see it in the Messiah through whom he crowns the righteous with salvation. We're going to see it through the metamorphosis of those he is crowned with salvation. We're going to see it in the marriage supper of the Lamb that's described. And we're going to see it through the message that we, that we are to proclaim about his crowning salvation of the righteous. So we're going to see God's glory in the manner, the Messiah, the metamorphosis, the marriage, and the message. Nailed it. <laughs> Stuck the landing. 
No, it's, I, I do alliteration, not to impress you, because I just sit there with the thesaurus and just play little <laughs> games to figure out how we can get them all to, and the one with the least resistance, the letter with the least resistance wins. No, I do that because it, it, it's a mental hook. It's a mental hook for us just to kind of understand. The text uh, moves in these ways. We're just going to follow through the text. But, but really, all of this, all of this points us to the glory of God. It, it all takes us back. So we want to look at the first two this morning. We'll look at the other three uh, next time. So the first fear in, these, in, in, these, in chapter 60 in which God's glory shines through, is the manner in which he crowns the righteous with salvation. The manner in which he crowns the righteous. And that's all of chapter 60. And you can break this down into four kind of smaller chunks. First, his glory, God's glory shines in our salvation in dispelling the darkness. In dispelling the darkness. In verses 1 to 3, we see that God now having dealt a crushing blow to the wicked in the previous verses, having stamped out every remaining vestige of, of evil in the world, now we start to see that sin's darkness is dissipating. Look at verse 1, chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah tells us here that when Christ comes back, that a new day dawns. I mean, that's the imagery he's using. He's speaking in figurative language here, but he's saying a new day is dawning. It is both an objective reality, right? The glory of the Lord has risen, and it's God's people's, God's people's subjective experience. He says, your light has come. The, the, the Lord will rise upon you. Living in this sin-cursed world is frequently described in Scripture uh, using the imagery the figurative language of darkness. And just as a few verses back, if you look back at chapter 59 and verse 9, as God's people openly confess their sin and acknowledge it, they acknowledge the world is full of darkness and they can't escape it. Therefore, he says, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. I mean, if you look at chapter 60 and verse 2, he uses the same language. He speaks of darkness covering the earth and deep darkness resting on the peoples. But when Christ comes back and he makes his enemies a footstool and glorifies Zion, this world of darkness is going to be overtaken by light. That's what he says. But the Lord will rise upon you, verse 2, and his glory will appear upon you. You say, well, what's the source of this light that he's speaking of? Well, verse 1 tells us it's the glory of God, the glory of the Lord himself reflected in and radiating out from a perfected people in Zion. It's us in glory. Verse, the end of verse 1, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The end of verse 2, and his glory will appear upon you. We've all seen some epic film, right? Watched a movie or a series or something where the righteous, the righteous protagonist is battling an evil foe, right? 
And what, and what happens when the good guy finally wins at the end? What happens? The whole scene brightens, right? The clouds dissipate. The, uh, the sky starts to turn blue again. Uh, the, the, you know, the sun comes out. I would submit to you that's biblical. <laughs> that's, it is simply uh, taking biblical imagery and uh, applying it to something that's more entertaining. But that's the picture here. Obviously, he's speaking in, uh, in figurative language to describe the glory of which Christ comes back. But when Christ returns, the light of God's glory, his righteousness, his truth, his, his holiness, that will transform his people, and it transforms the entire created order, right? When we, he appears, John says, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And, and what we learn throughout, what we learn throughout is, as we've studied Isaiah, is that what begins in Zion, that spreads throughout the earth. And that's what we see happening in verse 3. He says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is a transformed earth through a transformed people. So, so we see God's glory in him dispelling the darkness. In verses 4 to 9, we see God's glory shine in bringing his people home. Look at verse 4. He says, lift up your eyes round about and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will come to you, young camels of Midian and Ephah. Those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to the lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel." because he has glorified you. The picture here is one of an exile that has come to an end. That's the imagery that Isaiah is using. And what's described here is far greater, far, far greater than Israel's return from Babylonian captivity. That was, a, that was an appetizer in God's timeline of, uh, of the final exodus out of, out of sin's bondage. Even Israel's exodus out of Egypt pales in comparison to this Exodus that's described here. We see here, just kind of break it down in verses 4 and 5, Jew and Gentile are pictured here as coming home. And they are filled with joy, overflowing with joy, met with every possible provision. Right? Their, their daughters are radiant. You will see, your heart will thrill and rejoice. The abundance of the sea, the wealth of nations comes to you. Every provision is made. In verses 6 and 7, both Jew and Gentile are accepted as worshipers in God's house. Right? If you look at the end of verse 7, th these, these, um, these places that are mentioned, um, these are all Gentile nations surrounding Israel. And he says, they will go up with acceptance on my altar and I shall glorify my glorious house. This is, this is um, true worship happening 
verses 8 and 9, the whole world is on the move. And he sees, we see here, they are, they are moving speedily, right? That's the idea of, of clouds. Clouds don't, there's nothing in the way of a cloud, right? It just moves from point A to point B. There's, uh, there's nothing in the way of a bird. It just flies through the air. They are moving unimpeded. God's people are moving unimpededly, moving toward that glorious light centered in Jerusalem. I've used this illustration in the past, but when you travel, there's, especially if you're away from home for a long period of time, there's really nothing quite as satisfying as coming home for most of us. Going home means rest. Going home means comfort. Going home means all that's familiar, all that is um, refreshing, that's all within arm's reach. This homegoing that Isaiah describes here for God's people at his coming is the ultimate homegoing. Perfect joy, perfect rest, perfect provision. And all of it will point to and redound to the one who accomplishes it. Look at the end of verse 9. Why is he doing all this? For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. It's all for God's glory. He brings us home to glorify himself. We see God's glory shine also in verses 10 to 14 in establishing security. In establishing security, he says, verse 10, foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you. And in my favor, I have had compassion on you. Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men will, uh, may bring to you the wealth of the nations with the kings led in procession. For the nation and the king which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you. The juniper, the box tree, the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you and to all who despised you, they will bow themselves at the soles of your feet and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Israel's entire history has been one of dealing with constant threat from the surrounding nations. It's in the news even now. The nations here, as they're described, which in many ways kind of emblematic of those who stand in opposition to God, his word, his people, have lived in hostility towards the truth. That has always been the case. That'll no longer be a problem when Christ crowns the righteous. God's temporary discipline, which he alludes to here in verse 10, is going to give way to eternal compassion. There's the enemies of God, the gospel, God's people. They no longer are a threat. That's what's pictured in verse 11. Um, he, he says, the gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of nations with their kings led in procession. Like city walls and gates in an ancient context were for keeping enemies out. It was for protection from harm. Isaiah says the gates will be open day and night. There's no longer any need to close the gates. There's no need. In fact, Zechariah chapter 2 speaks about there being no walls in his vision. Why? Because he's pointing out that they're not needed. Because the serpent at his seat have suffered a crushing defeat. It's over. And rather than coming to afflict or to kill or destroy God's enemies, he 
the only thing that's pictured here is their obeisance. They're just bowing down. They have been brought to heal. All they can do is acknowledge that Yahweh is in their midst. Verse 14. The sons who afflicted you will bow to you. Those who despise you will bow themselves. And again, all of this, all of this is for God's glory. All that's glorious in the world will be unmistakably reflected in the place of God's unique presence among his people, right? His sanctuary. That's the place where the foot of God touches the earth. And of course, as we look to the rest of Scripture, as we look to the book of Revelation, God tells us that the sanctuary of God's presence is going to spread out and encompass the whole earth. He tells us in Revelation 21, verse 3, the angel heralds the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, is among men. It's everywhere. This is a new heaven and a new earth. Fourthly, God's glory is seen in the finished work, the finished work of salvation. Look at verse 15, whereas we have, you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of nations. You will suck the breast of kings. And then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. He says, and I will make your peace. I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation, your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning, he said, will be over." Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. In this kind of, there's a summary flourish here in these final verses of chapter 60. And God is promising that when Christ returns, Zion's going to be transformed. They'll be transformed materially, you see that in verse 17, he speaks of iron, you know, kind of lesser things being transformed into something greater. They're transformed socially. If you look at the end of verse 17, he says, I will make peace your administrators and righteousness, your, literally your righteousness, your government. They're also transformed spiritually. Verse 18, uh, devastation, destruction are gone. You will call your walls salvation, your gates praise. Salvation is what God does. Praise is how we respond to what God does. Zion will, he says, he goes on to describe, Zion will be right with God, verse 21. They will all be righteous. They will be eternally secure. They will possess the land forever. They are personally transformed by the Lord's power. This group that was nothing, this little tiny one, the smallest one, he says, becomes a clan, the least one a mighty nation. Why does God do this? Why does God bring all his salvation purposes to completion? 
He does it for the same reason he does everything else. Verse 21, the end. What? That I may be, what? Speak to me. Glorified. Glorified. Do you see how the manner in which God crowns his righteous ones with salvation is not about you and me, but ultimately about God. It's his glory. It's his glory in dispelling the darkness. It's his glory that's front and center in bringing his people home. It's his glory in establishing eternal security. And it is his glory in finishing his salvation work. It is all that God's purpose to do from the first day to the last day draws our gaze towards him. It exalts him. It reverberates back to him. God's glory is seen not only in the manner in which he'll save his people, but also in the face of the one through whom he'll accomplish it, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our second main point. It's seen in the one through whom he'll accomplish that salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 59 in verse 21 Yahweh promises that the Holy Spirit that rests on his regal conqueror, the one who rests on the spirit that rests on his righteous redeemer, that same spirit he is going to take and share with the children that belong to him that God's word would be in their hearts and on their lips forever. Verse 21, he says, as for me, this is God speaking, this is my covenant with them, meaning the people, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you, speaking of Messiah, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your seed, your offspring, nor from the mouth of your seed's seed, your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now on and forever. You say, that sounds familiar. Where have I seen that before? It's a new covenant. That's a new covenant in sort of summary form that he's describing here. In chapter 61, then, as we turn back to where we are, we see the reason why God's spirit is going to be shared with his beloved children. And the reason is to minister comfort to God's people and to change them from the inside out. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Verse, chapter 61, verse 1, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord. God wills, back in chapter uh, 59, verse 21, he wills our comfort. And then he gives the very, God gives the very thing that delivers that comfort. And, he may, and, and that is his son. He gives us his son and his spirit. And if you go back to 61 and verse 3, I want you to notice the, the downward movement of this comfort in verse 3. He's going to comfort all who mourn. And how's he going to do that? Uh, it starts with the crown, the, the, above the head. That's what a garland is. A garland is like a crown that you would wear on your head. It starts with a crown uh, instead of ashes. And then it moves down to the head, right? You anoint the head with oil. And then it moves further down still to the clothing. The mantle is like what you would wrap yourself in. 
But it, so it moves from the top, the comfort moves from the top down, but it also has an inward movement as well as you read through these, these verses. Ashes, right? People cover themselves with ashes to, is a visible form of grief because their hearts are, are grieved. He says, instead of ashes, you'll be replaced with a crown, which speaks of triumph. Instead of mourning, he says, you'll have the oil of gladness. Instead of despair, a mantle of praise. So there's a downward movement to the comfort. There's an, there's an inward kind of movement to the comfort. It's so in some ways, in a very poetic manner, he's, it's like God's comforting us from top to bottom, from inside to outside. It's holistic. And this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit is the down payment, the earnest of our inheritance. He transforms us from the inside out, from top to bottom, sealing us for that day that future day. You remember back um, in the end of John's gospel in the upper room, as Jesus is, is instructing his disciples, he said that when he left, when he left, he would return and he would send the spirit, that he, after he left he would, and returned to heaven, he would send the spirit, whom he calls the helper, the comforter. John 16 and verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. He says, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he, the spirit of truth, comes, verse 13, his, by his own, um, he will not guide you, he will, excuse me, guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. He says, therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. What is, he, what is Jesus saying there? What is the Holy Spirit's ministry? He says the Spirit is going, to take all, is going to take all that the Father has. He says, which I also have because I'm God. And all three are one. And he's going to share that with us as believers so that we can know and enjoy all that Christ has purchased for us through his life, death, and victorious resurrection. Right? Jesus came with tidings of good news. Jesus came to bind up those whose hearts were broken over their sin. Jesus came to proclaim liberty to those held captive and freedom to those in prison by their sin. The Spirit then takes that good word and the testimony of Christ's finished work, which we have in his gospel record, and he applies it to the heart, comforting us and carrying us to the finish line. Through the Son's work, then in the Spirit's application, the end of verse 3, he says, So, thus, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Why did God send his anointed son and the spirit to do this work? What does it say at the end of verse 3? That he may be what? Glorified. There's that word again. Jesus stood in the synagogue and read the opening verses of chapter 61 in the synagogue. And Luke 4 and verse 21 says, Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, which is, means he was going to speak. As everyone's eyes were fixed on him, he began by saying, today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he proceeded to blow their minds with all the gracious words that fell from his lips. That's my translation of verse 22. That was until he kept talking and then he told them all that they were unfaithful and they would reject him. And then they wanted to kill him. But this is what Jesus did throughout his whole ministry. He preached good news of the kingdom. Some believed and many did not. Many did not. And John begins his gospel in chapter 1. He says, in him, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. He goes on to say in verse 9 of chapter 1, Jesus was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Do you hear the language of Isaiah in those opening verses in John? Because it's there. The illusions are not random. It's not random. We are meant to make the connections with Isaiah so that we understand that this Jesus of Nazareth is the one promised by the prophets who would crown the righteous with salvation and usher in everlasting glory. He wants us to see that. He wants us to see that. And John ends that section by telling us that he came to his own and, his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the blessing, the privilege to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. To be a child of God is to believe, to trust and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior the one through whom God is glorifying himself in saving the world. Jesus is the only one who heralds good news to those who are afflicted. Jesus is the only one who binds up the brokenhearted. Jesus is the only one who proclaims liberty to those who are captive and the freedom to those imprisoned in their sin. Jesus is the only one who comforts those who mourn. Jesus is the only one who replaces the ashes of grief with a crown. Jesus is the only one who replaces a fainting spirit with songs of praise. Jesus is the only one who turns the seeds of the serpent into oaks of righteousness. And Jesus is the only one who turns the fullness of his life and then gives that to us. He says, John says, we have received grace upon grace. And he's coming back. He is coming back to once and for all dispel the darkness. He is coming back to bring us to our eternal home. He is coming back to establish eternal security. And so in a word, he's coming back to finish the work that he began. And we then who have the spirit, look at Christ in his word, in Isaiah, and all over the scriptures, and long for God to be glorified in his coming. Knowing that there's a day coming, a salvation ready to be revealed that can never be taken away. And as Peter says, in this, as believers, we greatly rejoice. We'll pick up the next three next Sunday. Lord, we thank you for the glory in which you have displayed your son to the world. We are just captivated by that. We can never... We can never really get enough of it. We, we continue to see uh, how all the pieces fit together. Lord, as, in this, and as you were presented to the world in your incarnation, 
It was really meant to be like like finishing a puzzle. The, the final piece would just be there and you'd say, oh, it fits right here. Um, but, but your people didn't see it. And Lord, we confess that there are many among us in this world. All the pieces are there in front of them. There's just one more piece they need to pick up and put into that open slot and they just don't see it. And it grieves our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that we would we would take up this righteous cause to proclaim the salvation that we have in Christ and we would call others to it, that they would see the glory of your Son, the work of your Spirit in the hearts of your people because, Lord, a, a holy church makes a hungry world. Lord, may you do that work in hearts here this morning. May you equip us to go out this week as we give thanks, and many of us will spend time with folks that we don't get to see that often, maybe family, friends, um, co-workers, whoever. Uh, Lord, may, we, may, may the truth of this hope be on our lips. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.